Well, good morning to you. Thank you all so much for being here with us. Would you open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8 this morning? Uh, hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving season. Uh, if you're like me, I am absolutely ready for Christmas. We've had our lights up for three weeks. Do not judge us. <laughs> um, if you're watching online, thank you so much for joining us. If you listen to our podcast later on, uh, just learned this week that we are number 170 in the Land, I think, of uh, somewhere in Mideast, or Middle East, so uh, in the podcast, so watch out there. Um, <laughs> no, we are so grateful for you this morning. Um, so, uh, a very interesting situation in our text today, a uh, very complicated situation in our text today. So, um, let me pray for us as we get started this morning, and uh, then we'll jump right into our time together. Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. Lord, the truth that we just sung, Lord, we were running our hellbound race indifferent to your cause. But you looked upon our helpless state and you led us to the cross. We thank you for the gift of Jesus this morning. Thank you that there is forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus. So what I just pray as we Work through this complicated text, or you are the God of this word. So would, would, would you just lead our time here? I pray your truth would be clear, God, that the gospel would be lifted up, Lord, and that today that you would do amazing things in the lives of people. In Jesus' name, amen. So we, like, like I said, we are in a very unique situation this morning. Um, I heard a pastor say this week about this text that, you might come across something like this every 10 to 20 years in the Bible. Um, and I don't mean that the story itself is confusing. I think it's one of those clear examples of the gospel that we can find in the Bible. Um, but what I do mean is, I'm going to show you really quick. So if you look into your Bible, if you have a newer translation, I have an ESV. That's what we have here at the church. Um, if you have the NLT, NIV, CSB, Holman, all kinds of different letters there, right? If you have a newer translation, you're going to see something like this in your Bible. So look right above John chapter 8, or it might be below John chapter 8, wherever it is in your Bible. And it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Now, after you read that, in your Bible, more than likely, it's either going to have two double brackets over 753 through 811, or it might be in a footnote, or it might be at the end of your Bible. So what in the world is going on with this? Uh, so brothers and sisters, I have prayed continually over this moment because I don't want our entire time to be a lesson in hermeneutics. Um, but I do want to make sure that we understand this, the, the, the issue with this text, the debate within this text, and I want to try to be as clear as possible with our time here, okay? Uh, I'm going to be completely transparent. I am not by any means completely qualified to fully explain all of this. There are many other people who are much smarter than I am that can adequately explain the complications of this little insertion that you see in your Bible. Um, but here's, here's my goal. For the first probably here 10 minutes or so, my goal is to simply give you a brief overview of what this little insertion means in your Bible, okay, to kind of explain the, the situation. And then I want to point out four different viewpoints about the text, what other people say about this thing. 
And then I want to explain how I'm going to handle the rest of our time as we preach the word, okay? So, um, when we read that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811, what the translation that you're holding, if you have a newer translation, means is that out of over 5,000 ancient manuscripts that have been found, copied, preserved, and translated... Now, for thousands of years, in which, by the way, all of our Bibles are based from, that's where we get our translations from, these manuscripts, and specifically, um, some of the older translations, some of the oldest manuscripts that can be found, some of that's considered probably more significant, if you will, through our translations, that the story here of the woman caught in adultery is not found in any of them. Not any of them, but in those specific ones. That's what they mean here. Now, let me make sure I'm clear. This does not mean that this, this passage, this story, is not found in all of them. It actually is found in some of these manuscripts. Um, in fact, there are manuscripts that have this story recorded in it. So please don't think this is just a random story in the Bible. Um, among the manuscripts of John, which include this story, the majority place it between 752 and 812, so right where we have it in our Bible, other manuscripts would place it after John 7.36, or after John 7.44, or this is interesting, even after chapter 21, verse 25. Um, and, and another group of manuscripts that have this story recorded actually place it after Luke chapter 21, verse 38. Because if you read the text, it actually does sound more like the first three Gospels rather than something that John would write. And that's an argument. In any sense, the point the translation that you're holding wants to make is that they can't fully confirm that this story was written by the Apostle John. They can't confirm it. Uh, it it's, it's just not enough evidence for that fact. Now, obviously, can you, can you hear, feel the tension of it? This has brought much debate and discussion about this text. So, the main question that we have to ask, and why this is important for us this morning is, we want to know, is this story true? Can it be trusted? And, here's the main thing, is it considered to be the authoritative word of God? Should it be in the original canon of Scripture? That's what all this is based about. This is what the whole argument is all about. So this leads us then to a few different viewpoints about this debate. Okay? So try to make this as simple as I can. The first, of this, I'm going to give you four different camps, if you will, okay? First camp, which is a very small minority, so there's, this is not the majority view, a very small viewpoint would say that this story is not real. Or at best, it's doubtful that it actually happened, thereby saying that it is not authoritative. So that's one viewpoint, I just want to give that to you. But listen to me, that is not the majority view. It's not the majority view. The overwhelming majority of scholars and commentators would not agree with that first view. Um, they would actually say that this story is real. Okay? So there's three viewpoints within the real category. Second camp would say that this story is true. That this was a real event that happened to Jesus. Just, if you read the text, it just sounds like something in the rest of the Gospels, doesn't it? If you read the text in a few minutes, it just sounds like it's true. It is real. But listen, because 
of the lack of evidence in ancient manuscripts as to its placement in Scripture, this camp would say that the story itself should not be considered the authoritative word of God. People who I personally look up to would say that. So that's the second camp. First camp says, not real, not authoritative. Second camp says, it is real, but it should not be considered authoritative. Third camp. Third camp would say that even though manuscripts have this story in various locations throughout John and Luke, or even Luke, that because of the scriptural and historical evidence, they believe that this story is both true and authoritative. So what, what they mean is that no matter its placement in Scripture, it should be considered the authoritative word of God. It's true and it's authoritative no matter where it is. Even if John did not confirm, can't confirm that John wrote it, it doesn't change the fact that it is the authoritative word of God. Okay? So that's the third camp. Finally, the fourth camp would say they believe that this story is both true and authoritative. And listen, that they would confirm that the Apostle John actually wrote this story and that it actually should be here in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now, that's all I'm going to give you at this moment about the history lesson about hermeneutical issues with text. Um, this, is what, this is what I've done for you today. If you're watching online, same thing for you. Right now, if you have the sermon notes in your hand, if you flip that thing over, the bottom right corner the back half of your sermon notes, there's a little QR code. All you got to do with that QR code is open your phone, cut on your camera, and scan it. It's going to take you to the link that people online are looking at right now to look at the service uh, flow of, of what we're doing today, it's, you know, song lyrics, sermon notes. But at the bottom of that link, there are six pages of further details of much, much great discussion about this text. Um, there's a sermon I would encourage you. There's a 40-minute sermon by John Piper that is breathtaking about this passage that will explain in detail, much greater detail than I could ever share, about all, this, all these complications in this text, okay? Um, but here's, note one thing. So I've gave you four different uh, authors that's talking about this text and talking about all the disputes and all the work about textual criticism and all this stuff about how they get to this. There, there's actually different endpoints as to what they say is actually authoritative. So you're going to hear one person who says the text isn't authoritative, but listen, no matter all the, all the things I've studied this week that I've shared with you, there's one thing that is not debated, brothers and sisters. All of those writers would completely agree that this story is absolutely real. It's true. This, this event in chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, is absolutely real. It's a true account about Jesus' ministry and life. And so this leads me to what I want to do for the rest of our time together. Um, that stance is where I personally stand as well. Um, I am actually in Camp 3, uh, where I can't confidently confirm to you that John wrote the original story. I do believe that this story is both true and the authoritative word of God. I agree with R.C. Sproul that says, whether it belongs here in John's gospel, in Luke's gospel, where some ancient manuscripts place it, or somewhere else is a question I leave for the ages. But I believe it is nothing less than the very word of God. So I will treat it as such. So brothers and sisters, um, for our remaining time together, um, I simply want to point out three authoritative core truths that are found 
in John 7, 53 through 8, 11. And for the sake of simplicity and clarity this morning, I want to preach this text as if it should be here in John 8, 7, 53 through 8, 11. So what I mean is, I'm going to try to connect this to John 7, okay? So, with that said, the first core truth that I want to point out in this passage is that Jesus sees through the masquerade of human perfection and exposes the sinner's heart. Let's jump into our text this morning. 7.53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So, let's, let's remind ourselves of the context of John 7. It's been a few months. You remember that we were in the Feast of Booths. Go back to John 7, 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And if you move down the story, verses 40 through 52, um, you see that Jesus' claim calls division. Um, some believe in him, others don't. It says in verse 44 that some even want to arrest Jesus. And where we left off last time in John, uh, in uh, verses 45 through 52, the officers that were hired to, to arrest Jesus come back to the Pharisees and chief priests, they're empty-handed, right? And that leads to an intense meeting between them about the claims Jesus says he is right. So, now, following their meeting, this is where we are this morning. Following their meeting, we see in verse 53 and 1 that all the Pharisees go to their own homes. You see that? But Jesus that night goes to the Mount of Olives. And then we see in verse 2 that it says that the early the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple in Jerusalem, and people begin coming back to listen to him teach. You see that in the text? So, what we're saying is, we're still in the context of the Feast of Booths. The next day after the events in 7, uh, uh, 7.45-52, to the next day Jesus here is teaching a large group of people. And we read in verse 3 that the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So what we see here is typical religious leader behavior, right? Like, like the Pharisees and Sadducees were always looking for ways to stump Jesus. We see it all through the Gospels. They cannot stand Jesus. We that they wanted to do anything they could to cause him to slip up just one time, just one reason so that they could arrest and kill him. And based on the context of John 7 and 8, you know that they were furious for failing once again with their attempt to arrest Jesus on the previous day. So what do they do here? They bring a woman who is caught in adultery the next day to test to see how Jesus would handle the situation. Like, like, there's no way he can get himself out of this situation. There's no way. If he agrees with us, then he contradicts his own teachings of mercy and forgiveness. And further, if he agrees with us, we can actually point to his claim against him by 
taking him to the Roman courts for trying to claim authority only Roman government had at this time. But if he disagrees with Scripture, they could point out that he was teaching contrary to the law of God. I'm a big Christmas fan, as I said. Uh, my favorite Christmas movie is The Christmas Story. Uh, little Ralphie and his little BB gun. At the very end of the movie, he finally gets his little BB gun, shoots the metal sign, remember it knocks his glasses off. He steps on his glasses, they break, and what happens? He, he panics. He's like, oh, they told me I was going to shoot my eye out. Oh, no. So he, he starts thinking in his mind, like, okay, what can I say that doesn't prove that I just shot my eye out? So what? He, he starts thinking, oh, I can, I can think of an icicle. Yeah, the icicle fell and it broke my glasses. That'll work. That's got to work. It does work, sadly, in the movie. <laughs> but this is my point. Like, they, it's like a last effort attempt to try to slip, make Jesus slip up. Um, verse 3 says that they placed her in the midst. So the scribes and Pharisees placed this guilty woman in the middle of the crowd. But, so they're basically circled around her. One small detail I just want to point out about this accusation. Where is the man that the woman commits adultery with? You notice that? Like, it takes more than one person to commit adultery. Clearly, true justice is not on the minds of these leaders at this moment. Then if you notice, it says that, um, go back with me to um, uh, verse 4. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, verse 5, now in the law of Moses, uh, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So the leaders here refer to Leviticus 20.10 in Deuteronomy 22.22, where the law declares that if a man commits adultery with the wife of another man, both of them should die, the man and woman. And I just love Jesus' response. Look down with me at verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. So, so much debate, discussion about what Jesus actually wrote. Uh, but the truth is that we just do not know what he actually wrote. The point is that Jesus refused to acknowledge the religious leaders. Um, this just reminds me of Jesus' response when he was being interrogated right before he was crucified. Back in Matthew 27, verse 14, it says, But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly Amazed. He is completely ignoring these religious leaders at this moment. He sees the hypocrisy that they are bringing before him. Go with me to verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So notice here that Jesus doesn't deny the accusation against the woman. Actually, Jesus affirms the religious leader's accusation. Like, yes, this woman is deserving of death. However, Jesus looks at the heart of the situation. He says Jesus stands and he actually responds to the accusers by actually referencing the word of God, Deuteronomy 17, 7, that the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
Now, this detail I'm about to share with you absolutely wrecked my heart this week at this text. It, it just completely changed my understanding of what Jesus meant here. So when, when Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you, he doesn't mean that the accusers had to be perfect in order to judge the accused. Like, like clearly this isn't true just looking at our court system, looking at how, how our government works. Like, there's no such thing as a person who is sin-free. But when Jesus says this, now listen, this is massive. When Jesus says this, he actually means that he who is among you who has not broken the seventh commandment can throw the first stone. So in other words, Jesus here in the circle of accusers looks at them and says, yes, I agree that this woman deserves punishment. And listen, she deserves it. And if you religious leaders who haven't committed adultery like this woman... You can throw the first stone. Game changer. The response is humbling. Verse 9. But when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the very thing that these religious leaders, these so-called holy men of God, were accusing this woman of breaking. They themselves have done the same thing. In other words, they have committed adultery and were guilty as she was. I said that the first truth that we see in this text is that Jesus sees through the masquerade of human perfection and exposes the sinner's heart. So these words were intentional. I purposely use the word masquerade because that is exactly what we see in this text. The religious leaders had a public costume or mask that they wore that declared their personal perfection. From the outside, it seemed like these leaders were sin-free, that they were perfect. They knew God's word up and down. They prayed continually. They had all the right attire appropriate for the position, and they had the authority to uphold God's law. But listen, from the inside... These leaders were broken and lost sinners who were as guilty as a ho- before a holy God as the prostitute on the side of the street. They're like someone at a costume or masquerade party. The person in the costume might look like that fictional character or that beautiful mask that hides their face, but under the costume or under the mask, they are just ordinary people who look just like anyone else. Over the past few weeks, uh, me and Pastor Stephen have had the honor to go out with our sister Teresa out to the homeless community and uh, not just minister, but more than anything, just learn from Teresa and just see what's going on in our community. Um, and just the things that we've seen are just heartbreaking. We see homelessness, we see brokenness, addictions, prostitution, slavery. The list goes on and on and on. But out of everything that we've seen, everything we've heard, um, some of the details, horror stories of who is oppressing the people is the worst of all. Like we've heard, listen, local pastors, local pastors, we've heard local pastors are actually on their spare time picking up men and women broken with nothing to live for, even young boys and girls, picking them up as prostitutes, as sex slaves. They have their way with them, give them a few dollars for their trouble, throw them to the side like a piece of garbage, and go to their office like nothing ever happens. That's here in this community. 
Can you imagine that? Pastor sexually abuses a young girl or boy, boy, drops them off, goes into their office to prepare a sermon that declares that those prostitutes on the street are in sin and deserve hell, and yet he himself, on his spare time, commits adultery, molests young boys and girls, and oppresses broken and needy people by prostituting himself. This pastor puts them to shame, but declares that he is holy and without sin. Brothers and sisters, it is a mirage. It's a masquerade. Before a holy God, that pastor, those pastors are guilty, and they, just like the prostitute on the street, are deserving of hell. They deserve death. Their sins will be punished. Make clear of that this morning. Their sins will be punished. Jesus, in this text, calls out the religious leaders. He sees through their masquerade of human perfection and exposes their sin. What we see in the context of our story today is that Jesus' words about the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 12, 39 is actually physically true, that they are an adulterous generation. So the first truth that we see is that Jesus sees through the masquerade of human perfection and exposes the sinner's heart. Second core truth that I want you to see is that Jesus offers forgiveness and transformation. Go with me to verse 9. Back half of verse 9 says, And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So picture the context. At this point, the woman's accusers have gone away. Um, the woman who was caught in adultery stands with Jesus, possibly all the people who were there listening to Jesus teach prior to the religious leaders coming. And notice again that Jesus acknowledges the woman's sin. She's, he's not saying you're not guilty. Quite the contrary, he actually says, sin no more. On the other side, the woman even has agreed with the religious leader's accusation. Like she's saying, yes, I have sinned against God. I am deserving to be killed because of my sin. Brothers and sisters, please do not miss the symbolism and core truth here. Jesus is the only one left in the interrogation circle after his response to the leaders. He alone is without sin. He could cast the first stone if he wanted to. But notice his response. What grace this morning. Verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So Jesus looks at this guilty woman who is publicly disgraced and offers to show her mercy and grace. Where the law condemned the woman to death, Jesus offers life. Carter and Redberg writes, She's been disgraced, and Jesus covers her disgrace with his grace. Jesus silences her accusers and then offers her forgiveness. Further notice how Jesus transforms the woman's life and calls her to a life of holiness. Verse 11. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus doesn't commend the woman to continue to live that life that she was living. You notice that? 
Like he's not okay with her sin. No, no, Jesus forgives her of her sin, removes her from the punishment, and then says, now, since you're forgiven, now, since you are mine, go and live as such. Jesus has given her a new trajectory. Uh, He's transformed her life, where at one time she was a reckless sinner deserving of death. She is now a forgiven child of God, and she is called to reflect his grace in all of her life moving forward. Romans 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This morning, Jesus is in the work of transforming sinners. He forgives and then he changes. He places a new heart in us. He places a new desire, a new joy, a new hope, and all of that motivates and strengthens us to this new life in him. So we see that first, Jesus sees through the masquerade of human perfection and exposes a sinner's heart. Secondly, we see that Jesus offers forgiveness and transformation. And then finally, the third truth that I want you to see is that Jesus takes the woman's place. Jesus takes the woman's place. One of my favorite current lyrics, which is a song actually based off this text, the second verse says, Grace, you saw the crushing weight my flesh deserved. You kneeled and wrote forgiveness in the dirt, and one by one the stones fell where they lay, and one by one my accusers walked away. With nothing left to throw, they made a cross And knowing only love could count the cost, you were there. You see, this morning, this very fact is most humbling. When you realize that Jesus, the perfect Son of God, ultimately took the place of the guilty, reckless sinner, this woman caught in adultery, this changes everything. This woman was guilty in her sin. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we were guilty in our sin. Her accusers, our accusers, circled her, circled us, declaring that she and we deserved to die. Listen, Jesus takes her out from the middle of the circle. He takes us out from the middle of the circle and puts himself in the middle in her and in our place. He took the punishment of death that she and we deserved, and because he did, she and we are forgiven and transformed. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we all know this passage by now. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that In him, we might become the righteousness of God. This morning, Jesus bore our punishment at the cross so that we would never have to. He took our sin and replaced it with his righteousness. He removed our ugliness and replaced it with his beauty. He died in our place so that we would experience his grace and forgiveness. We're just saying that just a few minutes ago, didn't we? Running on our own race, hellbound, the Lord led us to the cross, and we saw Jesus dying in our place. What grace!
this morning. So what? Might get out here a little early today, brothers and sisters. <laughs> so what? I just got two simple truths. Number one, repent of your sin and receive Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Repent of your sin and receive Jesus' offer of forgiveness. One of my favorite stories, you can turn there with me, Luke 18. Luke 18. Down to verse 10. One of my favorite stories about repentance. So starting at verse 9 of Luke 18, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, verse 10, Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and just adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pray Twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, listen to this, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. Last Wednesday, uh, me and Pastor Stephen went out with Teresa, and uh, we saw a man in a wheelchair uh, riding down the road, and um, uh, later after we met him, let, Teresa told us his story. Um, at one point, this guy was addicted to alcohol. He was addicted to drugs. In order to make more money, he actually prostituted himself, and some of the details in that would just break your heart. But as we, so we drove up to him, and uh, we met him, and few things I noticed right off the bat. First off, you could tell life had been very difficult for this guy, worn out. Life had been challenging, to say the least. Um, but a few other things I noticed. He had a cross on his hat, and I noticed how gracious he was, how, how kind, how appreciative he was of just us having a few moments to talk to him. And then something amazing happened during this discussion. Teresa actually looked at the man and said, hey, could you actually pray for us? The guy who we're here to help, hey, can you pray for us? And then, brothers and sisters, this man prayed the glorious gospel over us. He declared that his freedom that he had experienced in Christ. You see, like some time ago, this addict, this prostitute encountered our gracious Savior. He was pulled from the chains of addiction and sex, and Jesus transformed him. He repented of his sin, and Jesus forgave him. This man who was once covered with shame and brokenness is now covered by the righteousness of Christ. He who was once far off in his sin has now been transformed and seen as a child of the true king. Here's my point. There's no sin. There's no shame, no addiction, no walls of doubt, no lack of faith that can't be covered with the grace 
of Jesus. If you encounter the living God, you will be changed. Your sins will be removed. They're washed forever. For the song, third verse says, All humble and lowly, find grace in a stream of love. For your sin has been paid in full, and your past was nailed to the cross. This morning, are you covered in disgrace? Simply come. Be covered by Jesus' grace. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to free the captives, to declare freedom, to restore broken humanity back to its creator. So come. Come all who are weary. Come who need rest. Come all sinners and lay your burdens at the foot of the cross. Turn from your sin and look to Jesus for forgiveness. And secondly, very short, very brief. Simply, if you've been forgiven of your sin, if you've been washed by the grace of Jesus this morning, go and from now on sin no more. Go and from now on sin no more. Your life My life should not be the same as it was prior to the cross. That old self was crucified. Jesus now lives inside of us. Therefore, show it, reflect it, live it in everything you do and say. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Just one simple quote as we close. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. I'm going to read that again. The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. The future. So brothers and sisters, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven, we've been transformed. Therefore, let us walk in this newness of life together. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we are overwhelmed with your grace. Lord, that while we were still sinners... Lord, Lord, we were in the middle of the circle deserving of death. And in your grace, you sent your son to take our place, to bear our sin, to bear our punishment at the cross. And because of his perfect death, we are now forgiven. We're rescued because of you. Lord, you have transformed our lives. God, I pray for the soul in this room this morning. God, would you do a miracle in this place where there's no sin that can't be covered? There's no shame that can't be covered with beauty. Or would you transform a life in the name of your son this morning? Holy Spirit, do a work in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.